Our sermon passage is just one verse. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. I was able, thankfully, to be at Allison Memorial Service yesterday, and it was a good service, and the, the two gentlemen who officiated the service uh, were very engaging. There was nothing boring about the service or anything like that. It was important. I felt the importance of it. I was glad to be there, and yet I was reminded how difficult it can be to sit through a, a church service and stay focused and not get sleepy and not get distracted. I think it's really good every once in a while for me to do that uh, so I can remember. I recognize like what I'm doing has its challenges. I have to be prepared and, and faithful to Scripture. What you're doing has its challenges as well. Uh, so I recognize that. What I have for you, I think, is going to be extremely helpful, not because I'm really clever, as you know better than that, but because God's Word is powerful. And so we're going to read one verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. This is Jesus teaching his followers, and it's known as the Beatitudes, and we'll talk just briefly re revisit what that means, but we're just going to read one of them. It comes in a series of these statements, but our statement for today is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now think of the best way to sort of ease into what this verse means and what it means for you and me right now is with a question. It might be kind of a startling question, but if Jesus returned today, like this afternoon, as we walk out of here together after the service, if we saw the skies part and Jesus returned, would that be a happy moment for you or would that be a sad moment for you? Would that be a happy moment for you or would that be a terrifying, awful moment for you? See, we believe that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is the King of what is known as the Kingdom of Heaven. That He died on the cross for our sins so that sinners like me and you could be admitted as citizens into the Kingdom of Heaven. And then He arose from the grave and He ascended, promising to return to fully finalize this whole kingdom project that he is working on, creating a people unto himself, a people for himself. So this is a core Christian belief. Jesus is going to return and his kingdom is going to be made complete. And when that happens, will that be a happy fulfillment of all of your hopes and dreams and desires? Or will that be a sad, um, terrible disruption of all your hopes and dreams and desires? Now, that's something that is worth thinking about. The reason I phrase it that way to begin is just to get clear on that first word of our verse, blessed. That word blessed, really the simplest translation of it or synonym for it, the Greek word would just be happy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is teaching that these are the types of people who will be happy that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, when he first started preaching, his message was really simple. It was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. That was basically the twofold message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, for some people, the kingdom of heaven being at hand, Jesus' reign and rule beginning, is great news, and it does make them happy. But for others, it's not so great. 
These are the, the Beatitudes that we've been studying is laying out for us the kind of people who ought to be happy that the kingdom is at hand, who will be happy in the kingdom of God. So what we've seen so far, um, the poor in spirit are blessed because they will receive the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who will repent, not the self-righteous or self-affirming folks. They will be unhappy that the kingdom of heaven is coming. Blessed are those who mourn. So those who are sorrowful over their sin and hate their unrighteousness and the unrighteousness they see around them will be happy that the kingdom of heaven is arriving. They'll be happy in the kingdom of heaven. And so on, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, and then today we add to that the pure in heart. So now we've kind of been reminded what this is, these beatitudes. Let's let God press this word upon us here. Just take it bit by bit. Blessed are the pure. Let's just stop right there at the word pure. Do you know what the Bible means when it says pure? So if you are at a restaurant and you get a plate of food and it's all hot and steaming, it looks great, and you take your fork and you stick it in the food and then you see it, there's a long hair from someone in the kitchen or the wait staff woven all through that plate of food. What do you do? Do you pull it out and proceed to eat? Well, maybe some. Most wouldn't. Most would say, ah, waiter, waitress, I hate to be, I'm not usually this guy, but there was a long hair in my food here. You see it. I can't eat this plate of food. I'm going to have to get a new plate of food. Now, why? I mean, you're able to pull the hair out. I picture it like slapping against the wall. Well, <laughs> You're able to get the food out. It's not as though you have to eat the hair. So what is the problem? The problem is that that hair, you feel, has tainted the entire plate of food. So that plate of food is no longer pure. For the plate of food to be pure, it has to be free from contaminant, free from foreign objects. <laughs> blessed are the pure, means blessed are those who are free from contamination. Now, the plate of food was contaminated by a hair. Human beings are contaminated by, you guessed it, sin. Sin is a huge category biblically that we have to always keep in mind. And sin isn't just breaking a rule, breaking God's rule. It is that, but it's also contamination. And so when you sin, it does the same thing to you as a human being that that hair does to that plate of food on your table. It contaminates you. You're tainted now. God is perfectly holy. There is no sin in God whatsoever, and he cannot be in the presence of sin because he's so perfectly holy. And so it's a big problem that you and I are contaminated. I know you're contaminated with sin, and I know that I am too. The Bible teaches it clearly. Everyone who has ever lived has sinned and fallen short of the glory, the perfection of God. Now, sin-contaminated people ought not to be happy that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because there will be no acceptance of sin-contaminated people as citizens of the kingdom without something fixing that problem. It's pure people that ought to be happy that the kingdom of heaven is coming. But none of us is pure. I mean, if you think back over your last 24 hours, I'll bet you can identify a hair in your plate of morality or ethics. Maybe you fudged on the truth a little bit. Maybe you snapped in anger and used your words in a sinful way. 
looked at something you shouldn't have looked at, uh, done something you shouldn't have done. So we're all contaminated. Now, don't turn off your ears at this stage. Obviously, this is where we get into the good news of the gospel. And especially if you've grown up in church, you've heard it so much that it might be hard to, to stay in tune with how powerful it is. But this is why Jesus Christ is such good news. Jesus doesn't come with advice on how, you know, we're pretty good, but we could be better. He's got some good life advice. He came to die on the cross in payment for that sin that contaminates us. And so as Christians, we are not just a part of a, a program of life improvement. And once we achieve a level of religiousness or morality, God will be pleased with us. We are a new plate of food now. We are made new through Jesus Christ. Given a new heart, a new record, no longer contaminated in God's eyes, but pure. So it is the same old sermon. Sin is bad. Jesus is good. He's the only solution for our sin problem. But there is more to it in the verse. So let's look at the next two words. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those two words are really important. Blessed are the pure in heart. So if you have two children and one of them wrongs the other, uh, takes their toy, doesn't ask, it's rightfully the other kid's toy, it's in his possession, but they rip it out of their hands. That kid starts crying, this kid's mad about it, nobody's happy, it's a big issue. Parents have to then engage. And so a parent says to the, the kid who offended, who sinned against the other kid, you need to give it back and you need to say you're sorry. So then the kid that took the toy goes to the other kid, sorry. <laughs> now, is that worth anything? No. But it's the best the parent can do. The parent can't make the kid actually see the wrongness and actually feel sorry. The parent can't get down to the heart of that child and change it to where that child sees their sibling and says, you know, I love you. And I should be serving you. I should be generous to you. I should be giving you toys. Because that's how God created me. And I want to honor God and my generosity of toys. A parent can't really bring all that about. They can tell them that that is true. The best a parent can really do is make them go through the external act of saying, I'm sorry. But if it's only an external act, it's pretty worthless, really. Other than just teaching the kid what they ought to do and what they ought to feel. But a sorry like that doesn't really mean a whole lot. We instinctively know that if it doesn't come from the heart, it's disingenuous. It's, it's not really, there's no substance to it. It's not for real. God knows that better than any of us. So the kingdom of heaven is not about acting pure. It's about being pure. It's not about acting pure. It's about being pure. So it's not just about behavior modification. It's not just about making more pure decisions. It's about being pure from within yourself, that being actually who you are, what you love. The Pharisees and scribes were professionals at looking pure on the outside while being impure on the inside. The Pharisees and scribes, as many of you know, they were the religious elite during Jesus' time, and they looked great on the outside. They followed all these religious rules. They added religious rules to God's word and, and appeared to follow them beautifully. 
But Jesus knew their hearts, and so Jesus had no patience for the Pharisees and scribes whatsoever. And he spoke to them harshly. He doesn't speak harshly to uh, the, the overtly sinful people, the tax collectors and prostitutes. He's very kind and gentle toward them. But he was harsh toward the Pharisees and the scribes. And one uh, part in Matthew we'll get to eventually is chapter 23. So it might be like eight years from now. I don't know. <laughs> but he's, he's rebuking these scribes and Pharisees. And he gives this perfect illustration of what they're like. And he says, basically, you're like people who wash the outside of the cup, but not the inside of the cup. You're like people that wash the, the outside of the bowl, but not the inside of the bowl. And that's what it's like when we try to be pure on the outside, but leave the heart untouched. I mean, would you do that? Would you wake up in the morning and open the dishwasher and pull out a dish from last night that's kind of festering with bits of lettuce or coated with whatever, and then pour your cereal into that nasty bowl and eat out of it? No, of course not. It really is what's on the inside that counts. So Jesus is also going to go on pretty soon in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see him apply this principle in a couple of ways. First, he's going to apply it to murder. Right, so raise your hand if you've murdered anyone in the last 24 hours. Okay. <laughs> Okay, good. I like to check every so often. Jesus is going to say, you've heard it said, don't murder anyone. And we can all agree on that. But I'm telling you, don't even have murderous intentions in your heart toward people. Don't even have hatefulness in your heart that bubbles up into insulting language to or about people. Like, it's not just enough. Think of whoever it is that aggravates you the very most. Maybe some coworker, whoever it might be. I don't want to see any spouses looking at each other. It's not enough that you don't flip them off every time you see them. That's good. But Jesus wants you to actually love them. He sees down beyond the middle finger all the way to the heart. And he actually wants you to not feel hatred toward them, to not feel malice toward them, but to see them as created in God's image and precious to him, even with all their flaws, and to want the very best for them. To want to bless them, to, to love them. Now, that's a little bit more intense than just don't be slapping people around and shooting off at the mouth and insulting people or gossiping about people. The other illustration he gives had to do with adultery. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if anybody even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery in his heart. And it's just as contaminating. So even though that plate of food doesn't have like a full Bob Ross clod of hair on top of it, if it's down in there, it's still, if there's one hair down in there, it still contaminates the whole thing. So maybe you didn't actually act on your lustful intentions or instincts, but the fact that you have them contaminates you. I remember, and I'm going to dwell on this just real briefly because I believe pornography is a really big problem in the church as it is across the board because it's so accessible and so secret. So I, I always want to hit on it when I get the opportunity to. I remember working a long time ago in this warehouse and uh, several of us were Christians. Two of us were teenage guys. One of them was an older guy. I, I, he seemed quite older to me at the time. He was probably like in his upper 20s. And 
something about pornography came up. One of the non-Christian guys said something about something he had seen. I don't know. And the other teenager who was a Christian said, well, I don't want to look at that stuff. But then the older guy said, no, you do want to, but you don't do it. And that really stuck out to me at first because I was like, no, that kind of rings true. Young men in particular are just really susceptible to that temptation, very drawn to it. But as I got a little bit mature, more mature in Scripture, I realized that's not the actual destiny for us as Christians as we grow. Our, we, we won't want it anymore because Jesus changes our very heart. See, what Jesus does for us is so transformative as we grow that it's not as though we're living against the grain of what we actually want. It's what we actually want is changing. It's becoming more pure. And so you won't want to objectify anyone in that way. You'll start to hate it. You'll start to see people as human beings made in God's image, as someone's uh, mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister. Important. Now, it's not just sexual sin that gets the label of impurity. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in, these, in that same passage where he calls them basically dirty dishes on the inside, he says, you guys, you know, you look great on the outside, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. So I just point that out. It's any kind of sin, whether it be hatred or sexual sin. It could also be greed. It could be self-indulgence. Whatever it is, it contaminates us. And I think at this stage in receiving this scripture, we need to be asking God kind of internally, prayerfully as we're listening, show me. Father, reveal my heart to me. Is there some sin in me, in my heart, that I, I need to deal with before you right now? And the Holy Spirit is real and lives within his people and convicts us of sin. It's possible that many in the room right now are feeling that conviction. Don't suppress it. Embrace it as a gift. It's God sanctifying us. So we cannot purify our own hearts. Just like a parent can't make their child feel sorry, they can only make them say, I'm sorry. We can't actually change ourselves at that level. We can get better at self-discipline and willpower and uh, muster up some, some better habits, but we can't actually change us ourselves on that level of who we are, what we actually desire. If you'll read through the New Testament, just looking for that word pure or purity, you'll see very quickly that it is belief and acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ that purifies the heart. Hebrews puts it this way, our hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. It's not just forgiveness, it's the cleansing of our hearts. It's the cleansing of our desires, the cleansing of our motivations, the cleansing of our uh, loves, our affections, cleansing of our deepest down identities. So the kingdom of heaven is about purity of heart, but not just purity of heart. It does influence our actions as well. So what I'm not saying is if you're doing impure things, just don't worry about it. Ask God to change your heart and you can keep doing those impure things. The point is that when Jesus changes your heart, it will begin to change your external actions and your words. Think about it like a stream, a polluted stream. You do not want to drink out a polluted stream. Let's say there's some factory upstream just dumping out chemical waste into the stream. 
You don't want to be drinking out of that impure water, but you also don't want to just be constantly trying to purify that water. You want to go upstream and deal with the source of the contamination. Your heart is the source of the contamination. I think this is what has gotten so confused in our world. I think that apart from the teaching of Scripture, the advice to like follow your heart or just go with your heart, you know, you be you, seems good. The Scripture teaches that no, your heart is deeply flawed. So no, you don't want to just you be you. You don't want to follow your heart. It's gonna it's gonna pollute everything about you. You need Jesus to change and transform that heart. He told the Pharisees, clean the inside so that the outside would be clean as well. So this is the blessed way of the kingdom of heaven. There's two lies that you might fall for, just very, just practically, two lies not to fall for now that we've heard this passage. Don't believe the world's lie that you'll be happy when you follow your polluted heart. And don't believe the Pharisee lie that you'll be happy if you can look pure to other people, even if you remain impure inside. The pure in heart are blessed in the kingdom of heaven. And now lastly, almost done with this verse. Why are they blessed? Why are they happy in the kingdom of heaven? For they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I remember when I was a kid uh, at home during the summertime with like nothing to do. And my dad would be home with us because he was a school teacher. And I can remember giving him a hard time saying, why do I have to brush my teeth, fix my hair, change out my pajamas, make my bed? Like, what's the point? We're just going to be laying around here all day. I remember him saying, he's joking, obviously, but he said, well, you never know. The Queen of England may come down the road. She may be on some tour through the United States that we didn't know about. She may want to stop in and visit some regular Americans. Obviously, that's absurd. But as a little kid, something stuck in it. I was like, could that happen? Does the Queen of England do that kind of thing? And the idea was, you just, you don't know. You want to be prepared to be in the presence of someone that you care a little bit more about than your brother. So to see God, which means to know him, experience him, requires purity in heart. It's not really optional. You can't see him. You can't know him. You can't really hear from him in his word. You can't really talk to him in prayer if you are harboring and embracing an impure heart. Now, I know seeing God is probably a loftier goal than many of us probably walked in here with this morning. I find that in this world, the more immediate needs can be so loud that most of us are usually really just wanting to feel a little bit of peace, feel a little bit of joy, be a little bit entertained, experience a little bit of success, uh, do, do a decent job at our work, do a decent job as a husband, do a decent job as a wife, parent, friend, whatever it might be. That's why I think this might actually be the most important part of the verse for us, and it's where we'll lay it. What is it that you do want out of this life? What do you want? You have this one life to live in Jesus Christ, it'll be eternal. What is it that you're hoping for? 
we had this precious opportunity here to just slow it all down and really think about it for a minute because I know as soon as you hit the ground tomorrow morning, it's going to be sprinting through another week. It's always we're sprinting through another week, all of our obligations, all of our responsibilities, sprinting through. Maybe we can watch a little bit of Netflix. We got to get the bed because we got to sprint through the next day. And before you know, a week's going to pass, a month's going to pass, a year's going to pass, a decade's going to pass, your lifetime's going to pass. And what were we ever aiming for in the first place? See, the Bible teaches that your highest good, the best thing that you can hope for out of this life, is to know God and enjoy Him. To know God and enjoy Him forever. That's the way the old catechism puts it. This is probably the only place you'll be reminded of that. Because the world doesn't care about any of that. The world's not really all that concerned with purity. It's a value for the kingdom of heaven. It's not really that valuable out there in the world. And the world doesn't really care about seeing God. The world is more molding us to make our kingdom here and enjoy it as much as possible as if it was going to last forever, but it isn't. Our highest good is God himself. And when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that's what he meant. It's time now that God's people get to be his people in his presence with him, knowing him, hearing from him, living for him, talking to him in prayer, experiencing him. And then experiencing direct presence with him for all eternity. I think many church folks like us will settle for the appearance of purity because we're also settling for less than seeing God and experiencing God and knowing God. I think many of us will settle for just a a more peaceful week this week than last week. But if we set our aim a little higher, if we really want to know God himself, to walk in his ways, in his presence, to genuinely hear his voice in his word, to pray, to to genuinely interact with him in prayer, to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit within us, guiding us, directing us, convicting us. If we set our aim a little higher, I think we won't settle for anything less than purity in heart. Don't settle for anything less than purity of heart. That is yours through Jesus Christ. Don't settle for anything less than seeing God, knowing Him. That is yours through Jesus Christ. This is our blessing as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And if you're aware of any impurity in your heart right now, let's go to God in prayer right now. That's how we'll close our sermon time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us this word, just this one verse, so full of such goodness and so rich. And I pray that you would search our hearts and reveal to us any impurity that's in there. Not so that we would feel condemned or beating ourselves up as we go or just feel lousy about ourselves. So that we could go to you and claim the mercy and grace and forgiveness that you're offering through Jesus. And for the Christians among us who, are, who have battled with impure desires for years, I pray that you would just give them victory there. That you would give them freedom. That you would help them to live in light of their new purified heart. And I pray for your protection of all of us in this impure world that's always pressing the boundaries of impurity to the furthest extremes possible. Help us not to believe those lies. Help us not to go along with it. Keep us pure. Keep us close to you. And let us see you. Lord, I pray even today that we would experience our relationship with you for real, that we would actually have a sense 
that we know you and that we hear you in your word and that we can talk to you. We entrust ourselves to you for all these things in Jesus' name.